first scripture reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Let us listen for God's word for us today. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into Tileam, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 soldiers of Judah. Saul came to the city of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, leave, withdraw, withdraw from among the Amalekites, or I will destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took King Agog of the Amalekites alive, but utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Saul and the people spared Agog, and the best of the sheep, and of the cattle, and of the fatlings, and the lamb, and all that was valuable, but would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. We continue in this passage, in this difficult uh, story from the saga of King Saul, which we have been following uh, these past couple weeks here. Um, We'll continue now through verse 23. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Samuel was angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and Samuel was told, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself, and on returning, he passed on down to Gilgal. So when Samuel came to Saul, Saul said to him, May you be blessed by the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he replied, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are small in your own eyes, Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. 
I brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But from the spoil, the people took sheep and cattle, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Surely to obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of the rams. For rebellion is no less a sin than divination, and stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word as well. Will you join me now in a moment of prayer? Let us pray. Holy, holy God, we ask that you would come into our midst now and to speak a word, to speak a word of truth and of life to your people gathered here. I pray that you would take my words and give them life, that your people may hear clearly what you are saying through this passage of Scripture, that we may hear what you are saying through this moment in which we are gathered and called by you to be your people. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. In her book, Texts of Terror, biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble describes passages like the one we just heard as a story we want to forget is in the Bible but that we are still commanded to speak. In a recently published book, Redeeming Violent Verses, Eric Siebert identifies 1 Samuel chapter 15 as an example in the Bible of what he calls divinely sanctioned violence, that from the perspective of the biblical authors is virtuous violence. Siebert points out that it is rare indeed to hear these verses read in church, let alone proclaimed from the pulpit as gospel. Yet here we are, and this is the word of the Lord for the people of God here today. Thanks be to God, I guess. Siebert says that typically what happens with these violence verses is that either the violence is minimized, it's really not that bad, or it is justified. And said that the the violence is warranted, that they had it coming. This morning's passage, which is about the utter destruction, the extermination of the Amalekites as a people, man, woman, and child, cannot be minimized. That violence cannot be minimized. Saul and his army utterly destroyed all of the people of Amalek with the edge of the sword, it says. But there is ample historical precedent in the narrative of the Old Testament that seems to justify this violent destruction. We hear it in the prophecy that Samuel receives at the beginning of the passage. When Moses was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt as they were recuperating and taking a rest after they had made it out across the Red Sea, the Amalekites, who were a nomadic tribe that lived in the desert region near Sinai, they came and they attacked the Israelites. 
According to rabbinical interpretations, the Amalekites came with a sneak attack from the rear of the Israelite camp that specifically targeted innocent women and children. In the end, Joshua gathers some men from among the Israelites and goes and defeats the army of Amalek. And, and it's really only through divine intervention that this is able to occur. And then afterwards, the Lord says to Moses, write this, write this down in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And while God makes this promise at the time of Moses, what we see in our passage today is that in the time of Samuel and of Saul, that's the time when God means to keep that promise. Having anointed Saul, the king over Israel, having given him the power to amass the army at Gilgal, now is the time to wipe the Amalekites from the face of the earth. And this is an unusual and dangerous idea. It is an unusual and dangerous idea indeed that God sanctions and uses leaders to commit genocide. In those days, they didn't even have that word genocide. It's, it's not just that it's seen as abhorrent in our times. In that time, it was not the usual practice of ancient Near Eastern armies to go and destroy one another completely or to exterminate an entire people. More often, the result of wars in the ancient Near East was an offering of tribute or people were taken into slavery for a time. But the idea of utterly destroying a people, that was unheard of in those days. It's strange and unthinkable even in that time. And that's what this is. And we hear it that way here today. Unthinkable that God should command a genocide. In or out of context, this is a dangerous idea. And it has been used by unscrupulous rulers to justify heinous violence. Two weeks ago, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu did just that. He said uh, that the Israeli people are committed to completely eliminating the evil of Hamas from the world. And then he added, not subtly, you must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our Holy Bible. And we do remember. Rabbi Jill Jacobs, who's the head of a human rights organization called Teruach, said of these comments that they are characteristic of Israeli extremists dating back to the 1980s and before, who view Palestinians as the modern-day Amalekites who need to be wiped from the face of the earth. But the rabbinical tradition is much older than this extremist faction. The rabbinical tradition is clear that the Amalekites as a people ceased to exist. Their descendants were so intermixed with other cultures that the seeds of Amalek are found in every nation. Rabbi Yeshayahu Leibovitz, an Orthodox Jewish commentator writing in the 80s, explains that it should be emphasized that in its broader significance, the war against Amalek is the war against wrong and evil in the world, traits which have existed from time immemorial in all human nature without exception. Rabbi Jacobs hopefully adds that the overwhelming history of Jewish interpretation is to interpret the commandment to destroy Amalek metaphorically. 
An example of this comes to us from one of the founding figures of the Hasidic movement, the 19th century Polish rabbi Levi Yitzhak, who said, not only are Jews commanded to wipe out Amalek, a descendant of Esau, but each Jew has to wipe out that negative part that is called Amalek hidden in his or her own heart. So long as the descendants of Amalek are in the world, and each of us is also a small world. So when the power of evil in each of us arises, Amalek is still in the world. And the reminder to wipe out Amalek calls out from the Torah. Rabbi Shmuel Bornstein puts a further point on this. He says, as love grows, so must hate grow. And it is the same with the remembering of Amalek. In order to awaken enmity and hatred in the heart against the Amalekites, we begin by remembering on Shabbat a day of love and favor among Jews, their God in heaven. From within this love grows the hatred for Amalek. Another rabbi, an expert in the law, said, Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. That's not a Jewish rabbi of today. That's not out of the rabbinical tradition. It's not even Old Testament. That's from the New Testament. That's from Paul's letter to the Romans. He says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Paul was an excellent student of the rabbis. He understood that Amalek is significance as a metaphor for naming the ones in the world who have been overthrown by sin as well as the parts of ourselves that lead us to act in ways counter to God's intentions. Indeed, as the words of the prophet Samuel indicate to us, what God does not desire is burnt offerings and utter destruction. The Hebrew word for which, coincidentally, uh, the word for burnt offerings until the 1940s was often translated as holocaust. But God does not desire these holocausts and genocides, but rather obedience to the voice of the Lord. The deep irony of this passage is that even as we get hung up on the moral and metaphysical quandaries engendered by God's command to Saul to destroy the Amalekites, spinning ourselves into the ground, wondering how and why God could wish the destruction of evil from the world, we miss the practical question, which is, which is what does this story tell us about what we are to do when it comes to evil in the world, what are we to do with this one fleeting life that we have been given? Uncritical and unscrupulous people say that what we should do is to seek out and find the evil ones in the earth and wipe them off the face of the earth violently. In the Florida State House on Friday, a state representative named Angie Nixon introduced a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Israel and Gaza. She said, we are at 10,000 dead Palestinians. How many will be enough? At this, another representative named Michelle Saltzman shouted out, all of them. All of them will be enough. But if we turn our attention back to the Bible and focus a critical and scrupulous eye upon the text, we see a different lesson. For the Bible says that God regretted making Saul king over Israel. Saul was living a regrettable life 
because Saul was failing to do the one thing that God really wants from God's people, which is to listen, to listen and to obey. Perhaps you're asking yourself, how could anyone expect Saul to carry out such an awful commandment? How could you expect anyone to go with, through with something that's so extreme as that? But here's the thing about this passage, friends. Saul seems to have no problem with the cruelty. He seems to have no more problem with it than that Florida state legislator did who called for the deaths of all Palestinians. Saul Saul doesn't worry about destroying the Amalekites. No, he gets caught up on the idea of taking all of the valuable livestock and valuable goods that they have captured from the Amalekites and consigning those to the flames rather than making a sacrifice of some and feasting on the rest or or collecting these riches into into the temple and wealth of the king. Saul gets caught up on killing King Agag because King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, that's a, that's a valuable commodity, a useful political bargaining chip. God had commanded Saul to go all the way when it came to defeating the evil of Amalek, but Saul stopped short of that total defeat. And then, to make matters worse, Saul denies and prevaricates and passes the blame for his actions. When Samuel appears, Saul says, I have done what the Lord commanded. And Samuel goes, then what is that I hear? Why are there all these cattle and sheep with Amalek brands in your corral? And Saul says, well, I utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people wanted to keep the sheep and the cattle. But Samuel sees right through it. He says, stop. Stop. Samuel knows that Saul kept King Agog as a political prisoner. Samuel knows that Saul had his eye on those sheep and the cattle too. And so not only does he prophetically pronounce judgment upon Saul, saying to him, you see yourself as this small man beholden to the people, but are you not the anointed one of God? Have you not been called to keep God's commandments? Saul pronounces that Samuel pronounces this against Saul, but then after this, Samuel takes matters into his own hands. He demands that Agog, the Amalite, Amalekite king, is brought to him, and Samuel pulls out a sword and kills him right then and there. Because unlike Saul, Samuel is willing to go all the way. Here's the thing. Jesus never commanded violence, let alone genocidal violence. Jesus never endorsed it. Jesus never committed any acts of violence. Jesus spoke plenty of prophetic condemnations against the powers and principalities, but he never cursed them, he never whipped them, he never hurt anyone. Jesus, the Word made flesh, unmediated through the sensibilities of a prophet or a king, but but God God's self with us showed us that God's way is the way of nonviolence and peace. So where in the midst of all of this killing and death in this morning's violent verses is that good news of Jesus? Well, let me put it to you as, as a different kind of question. Ask yourselves, what has God called upon you to do that is extreme and outside of the norm? that is unusual and requires you to go all the way.
I'll give you a second to think about it. You have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go two. And give to anyone who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be called children of your Father in heaven. Jesus told his disciples, if any of you wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? What will they give in return for their very life? Friends, God's desire for our lives is not that we will have everything that we want. It is that we would be who God created us to be. To be who God calls and equips us to be. Who, even when we fall short, God still believes we can be. The phrase, no regrets, is often about living in a way that is untethered to the past or to consequences of our choices. But I say to you, if you have no regrets, it means you've never actually ventured enough or gone far enough to know what it looks like to go wrong. Until we fail boldly, we cannot know the abundance of God's grace. And until we give boldly, we cannot be sure that we won't live to regret it. In this moment of scripture, God does not reward the selfish and disobedient Saul with a second chance. But in the fullness of time, there would be a man named Saul to whom God did give a second chance. While Saul was on his way to do his business of persecuting Christians, living his best life, fulfilling the teachings and the commandments he thought were making him righteous. Christ came to him in a blinding vision and knocked him off his horse, took away his sight. But then he gave him a new vision, a vision of grace and redemption that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul experienced that grace, and he would go on to share the good news of God's grace, available to us all through faith. Paul was all in. He was all in when he said, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. The good news of Jesus Christ, friends, is that love is as fierce as death and grace is as deep as regret. But the word of God is that love and grace are what come out on top. That God's steadfast love is what endures forever. That the world may kill and crucify, but God is the one who resurrects and redeems. Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And so, friends, we should see Saul as a sad example of a regrettable life, a life in which he persisted in his selfish ways, 
in which he failed to heed God's commandments and passed the blame to otherwise. How much better would it be to live a life in which we acknowledge when we have fallen short and to know that in doing that, a whole new world opens up to us, a world where peace is possible, where nonviolence is the way and the truth, and where ultimately God's justice will rain down in this world of war and strife. And so as we go from this place today, I pray that we would cling to what is good, that we would hate what is evil, but that we, we would know that that evil is not the